And please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, or the Canticles, uh, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, as we continue to work our way through this book rather slowly. But uh, every communion, we seek to prepare ourselves, or, or actually even hear from one other sermon from the Song of Songs. And we find ourselves now in chapter 2 and verse 14, as we prepare for communion, we uh, will read from 14 to 17, uh, particularly consider verses 14 through 16. Well, with that then, please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 14. These are God's words to us. O my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine, and I am his, he feedeth among the lilies. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our holy God, we come now to the preaching of the word of God, and we pray, Father, that you would make this preaching of the word effectual to the hearers of the word. We pray that your servant who will preach will preach in such a manner by the Spirit's help that Christ would be high and lifted up among your people. We pray, Father, that the people of God would be enraptured by their Savior this night, that they would long for him, to meet him in glory especially, but more than that, uh, in, a, uh, in a heightened way, ready for the communion table as it stands before them, that they would see their Savior wooing them to himself, to come and put away all that stands between them and the Savior. Father, we pray this now, that you would be glorified by the work of thy beloved Son. And so we ask that unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, the grace would be given, that I should preach among your congregation, O oh, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we... Do long, I trust, to look upon the face of those that we love. We long to hear their voice speak to us. And I don't think that this is anything particularly profound. It is natural to the heart to want to look on the face of our beloved and to hear their voice. This uh, week, you know that Elder Silva and I were out at Presbytery and came home very late. And it was my joy to see my wife's face and to hear her voice especially after a time away from one another. Now, that's something that's very easy to grasp. I don't think there's anything particularly profound in what I have said. But what is truly remarkable and what is truly unimaginable, really, is a meditation on our text that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, longs to see our face and longs to hear our voice. And that is something that really staggers us. Why would Christ desire to look on us and say, I want to see your countenance 
And I want to hear your voice, for you are lovely and your voice is sweet in my hearing. This is quite unimaginable, really, that he delights in us. He delights in our countenance. He desires our voice, for sweet is thy voice and thy countenance is comely. Why does he say this? Of course, he means it. He means it. But he is doing this as he often does, as the Savior often does, to woo us to himself, to draw us to himself, to allure us to himself. He doesn't just hold out his glory and his beauty, but he also says, I desire you, I who am altogether lovely, I desire you, and I desire communion with you. In, this, in the prior text, you might remember it from three months ago, what did he say in verse 13? Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. And what he is doing here as he speaks these gracious and uh, alluring words to his bride is he is enticing us to arise, my love, and come away and visit with him. And as you prepare for the table, friends, We often prepare with our sense of desire for Christ, remembering how lovely he is, how precious he is, how altogether lovely. But here we find that we must prepare as well to come to him, knowing that he is drawing us. Not just that we are to desire him, but to recognize that our Savior desires us to come. And if we would do that, friends, it would cause us to put aside to deal with whatever might stand between you and the supper, knowing who it is that is calling. And if you in some way might contend against the teaching of this text, you need to ask yourself the simple question. If you do love the Lord, why is it that you love him? Is it not because he loved you first? Is it not because he desired you? Is it not because he called you to himself? Is it not because he has wooed you to himself? Yes, we love him because he first loved us. And his desire for us is actually demonstrated at the table. Did he not? What did he tell his first uh, disciples? With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Was his desire for the food? Was it for the Passover lamb? No, he pointedly says, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. His desire is actually for you. And by faith, we believe Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that he still desires us at his table. And we must believe that, friends. It is incredible. It is absolutely astonishing to think that the Lord of heaven desires us. But he does. But he does. And so the exhortation is simple. Come and give him his desire, beloved. Come and give yourself to him. Come and commune with him. Lift up thy countenance and speak to him. So our meditation tonight is on that theme. That Christ desires us and especially desires us at his table. And we'll consider that under three heads. First is the bride's nature. Second is our Savior's desire. And third, their mutual or our mutual interest. First, the bride's nature. Now we have spent some time now in the Song of Songs. 
And it's always good as three months elapse to remind new people come to be reminded how we handle this book as we preach through it. We do not primarily see it as a love manual, right, for husbands and wives, nor do we see it as a historical testimony primarily of the love of King Solomon to his wife. But instead, it is a testimony of the greatest love story of them all. The Song of Songs concerns the love of loves, the love of King Jesus for his church. Ephesians 5, 28-32, I hope this has been made familiar to us, especially in our marriage series. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. This is really the story of the Bible, the marriage of King Jesus to his church. And after the general resurrection, believers will find them in uh, themselves in the marriage day, the marriage day to King Jesus. Revelation 21, 9 through 11. Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal and so on. And so this book, the Song of Songs, is a testimony to the love Jesus has for us, his church, his bride. What does the revelation say? Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Revelation 1.5. That is a love that leads to the marriage. You and I need great reminders of the love of Christ for us. Is that not the only thing, the only thing that makes sense of the cross itself? Right? We need reminders of his love, that it didn't just die on the cross either, that it endures for us. Because it wasn't a love that began at the cross. And it wasn't a love that was just manifest on the cross. It was a love eternal that has never begun. It has always been so. And it will never end. It didn't end in the grave because Christ was resurrected from the grave and set at God's right hand. It is an eternal love and it will be eternal forever. That even as Christ is raised and at God's right hand, so is his love beating in heaven for us. And we need constant reminders of this, friends, as we persevere through this world, that God in Christ loves us and Christ himself will be wed to every believer. And we must know these things so that we would be drawn to Christ and drawn away from the world, drawn away from sin, and that we would see him and never leave him who is our first love. And this book, then this precious book of the Bible, woos the church to consider her heavenly husband. For we are to be enraptured by the husband of this book. He is so glorious. Called in chapter 5, the chiefest of 10,000, altogether lovely. There's only one that that describes, which is Christ. The one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. The one greater than Solomon. Jesus Christ is here in this book. Come to redeem and set his bride at his side for all eternity. And we need constant reminders of his love 
This book is really in many ways meant to be a treasure to the Christian, to take it up as a love letter from the king and head of the church to us, his bride. If you would see it that way as you prepare for communion, beloved, would you not run? We're going to come to a a chapter soon where there's a sense of running to the Lord. You would run to the communion table, seeing that he desires to have you and have you there. And you would resolve to put aside whatever stands between you and the Lord's table. Is there some species of unbelief? You would purge it out of your heart. Is it some matter of forgiveness that you must extend to a brother or sister? You would extend it readily. Your pride would be humbled and smashed so that you can come to Christ. Is there some sin you have grown to enjoy that you have nurtured in the heart? You would mortify it. You would put it to death. You would cast it away so that you could run to Christ. Is there some grief that has caused you to be downcast? You would arise from your grief and flee to Christ's table for the health of thy countenance. And so, with that then, let us hear how the Lord addresses you who believe. Verse 14. O my dove that art in the clefts of the rock in the secret places of the stairs. There are two things to note here. First is our nature and second is our position. What is the Lord's nickname here for you who believe to show you your nature? He calls you saying this term of endearment, O my dove. O my dove. Even outside of the scripture, right, the dove is prized. A dove is a symbol of peace, of purity, of love, even of freedom. In the scripture, doves are commended to us as symbols of God's grace. From Genesis, where the dove returns to the ark of salvation with an olive branch, to the Gospels, where the Holy Spirit alights on Christ, descends on Christ as a dove. Now, Jesus also called his disciples to be as doves, you might remember, right? In Matthew ten sixteen, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You can see this term of endearment is used by the Lord himself, right, in the Gospels. And what does he communicate in that text? That the believer has a sense of innocence about them, don't they? That's a grace that he works in you and and is working in you. Have you ever met a really, uh, a man or woman who was once a really hardened sinner? I've been blessed to know some before conversion, after conversion. And sometimes you find the most hardened men and women And their eyes are hard, their heart is hard, and you see just how it is that they are set against the Lord and his people. But then like Saul, right, the grace of the Lord comes into their heart, and suddenly they have dove's eyes. And they're very innocent now, and they're very tender, and there's a tenderness that was never manifest in them before. And that's what the Lord does when he converts his people. He can turn the hardest of hearts, like Paul, to a man who then will say, be kind ye one to another, be tender-hearted, love one another. A man who once was beating and taking men and women and sending them into prison. This is the kind of innocence that the Lord works in us, turning hardened sinners into doves. And that's a grace that he will further communicate to you in his ordinances, especially in the Lord's Supper. When he calls you to the table, he calls you that through his feeding of you, you might become more and more innocent like these doves. Having deceit and every sin starting to be purged away from us. 
And you are to come to the table with this desire that what the Lord has called us, I would become in truth. There's also a kind of tenderness to the dove as well. You know, it's a very delicate and often mournful animal. Just as the Christian often is in this world, even as the bride was earlier in this book, as one distressed by the heat of the world, mourning over our afflictions. Don't you mourn, child of God, over the heat of the world? the difficulties in it, as well as your sin that pierces your heart. But rather than our heart being hardened, the grace of the Lord causes us to mourn as a dove. Isaiah 38, 14. Like a crane or a swallow, so did I chatter. I did mourn as a dove. Mine eyes fail with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. uh, oppressed. Undertake for me. When you are oppressed, by the world, by your trials, or by your own sinful heart, and you mourn. In that time, what are you to remember? Christ calling to you, saying, Oh, my dove. And he's calling you to himself. Oh, my dove, come to me. Oh, my dove, come, and I will give you rest. Now, the dove is also a picture of monogamous love, isn't it? You know, mourning doves, they are monogamous typically for life, and they can often mourn. Um, as in Isaiah 38, 14, when their mate dies. And that's a soul-stirring thing to even see in an animal, isn't it? And you think of what it is then that we are to have the kind of monogamous love to the Lord, to be faithful to Him, right? And that's why He calls us the dove. We are meant to have eyes for no one else but Christ. Do you remember, and I was thinking about this, this is a you know, soul-stirring thing, right? The dove's mourning. And he calls us, oh, my dove. Do you remember how Mary Magdalene, how she wept when her Lord died? John 20, 11 through 13. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, what? Because they have taken away my Lord. And I know not where they have laid him. This is what the believer feels when Christ is away from them. They weep and they mourn because their beloved, the one that we say, he is mine and we are his, is taken from us or is far from us for a moment. That's also communicated in the nature of the bird mourning. Of course, we are thankful to know if we knew the rest of that chapter that Jesus ministers to her, comforts her, and she clings to him and doesn't let him go. Every time the believer is apart from Christ, they mourn as a dove. They weep as Peter wept when he came to his senses and wept after denying Christ with his distance away from Jesus. Believer, you would come to Christ's table readily because to be apart from him, right? Sometimes there are good and right things that keep us away from the Lord. These are things that we are dealing with. But when we sit over there away from the table, Right? Don't we mourn that we cannot be? Some of us have had that experience. I long to be at the table, not because right, that it's, it, it's shameful or something like that to be over there. That's not the point. The point is I am not with Christ. So you do have to deal with all that keeps you from the table this week that you might cling to him there. Then the dove teaches us that the wife of Christ is beautiful to him. Psalm 68, 13. Though ye have lean against among the pots, 
Yet shall ye be as the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. This is how Jesus sees us when he calls us, O my dove. Though ye have lean, you have lied with the pots. You have lain, rather, with the pots. Though you have lain with things base, though you have lain with things profane, even among the pots in Egypt as servants, servants and slaves to sin over all, though you are sinners to Christ, you are as the wings of a dove covered in silver and her feathers with yellow gold. That's how Jesus sees us, his bride. You know, providentially, and this is not planned, we're in Ezekiel 16. Now, haven't you seen him deck his, his bride with his own jewels? Psalm 45 teaches the same thing. Revelation 19, we read that we are as a bride adorned for her husband. All of this shows that Jesus Christ decks us with his own beauty. And he covers us to make us beautiful. He has adorned us with his righteousness. And I was thinking on this, and you must think on this too. If the Son of God is the creator, adored his creation. And what did he say afterwards? He called it very good. How much more does he look upon his redeemed, washed in his own blood, adorned in his own righteousness, with his own beauty? How much more beautiful does he call you and I who believe? Because we are beautiful in his sight, covered with his own righteousness. He says to you, O my dove, and he woos you to his table. And you have to see yourself through the lens of Christ himself. I know that as we sin, right, we often look on ourselves and we see ourselves no way beautiful to the Lord. And yet he says, though you are still sinners for this time, because I have clothed you with my own righteousness, you are beautiful to me. And not only that, I see you for what you will be one day when my work in you is completed. And so he calls you to himself and he sees that even though we are like some base animal in truth, he calls you, oh my dove. And that is meant to bring you to the table. And the only way you can be brought to the table is if you recognize that you are to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and you have received it by faith in him. Well, if that is our nature to him, what is our place? What is our position? Thou art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. Now, the Lord here shows us that he has elevated us. He has elevated us from our base nature. He has placed us in the clefts of the rock. He has hidden us in secret places and we are secure in him. You remember that when Moses wanted to see the glory of the Lord, what did the Lord do? Exodus 33, 21 through 22. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and thou shalt stand upon a rock and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by that I will put thee in the cliff of the rock and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. He puts us in a rock. He puts us in Christ and he covers us. Or what of Psalm 91? He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him will I trust. He says, oh my God, oh my dove, I have placed you safe and secure in Christ and exalted. And it is likely the case as you think of your life hidden in him, you are thinking of the text in the New Testament in Colossians 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is what? Hid with Christ 
in God. The word hid there actually hearkens you back to Moses in the cliff of the rock. Your life is hidden. That word there, the root is crypto. It is secure. Your life is secure with Christ in God. That nothing can touch you on the earth. Because your life is secure. Not even sin, not the devil himself, not even your own flesh can take you away from Christ who has set you in his own hand. And your life is hid with Christ above. There's nothing earthy or earthly that can touch you. And what was the use? You are to seek heavenly things, aren't you? Where is your life? Is your life actually here on earth? What does the text say? Your life is hid with Christ above. You are to set your affections on heavenly things because that is where your life is lived. Your life is truly lived there. And he reminds you of that as he endears you to himself, beloved. This is who you are, congregation of the Lord. You are his dove. He has elevated you to heaven. He has seated you in heavenly places with Christ above. He himself has exalted you. He has hidden you away in his own self as the rock impenetrable. He loves you. He gave himself for you that you would be saved and saved forever hidden in himself, held close in his bosom. How many things the Lord has done for us. We need reminders of who we are to Christ and where he has put us that we might better understand how he is wooing us to commune with himself. And so with that understanding, let's consider our second head, which is our Savior's desire. He says to us in verse 14, this is him speaking, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice and thy countenance is comely. As I said earlier, this might just be the most astonishing things about our Lord, that he desires, child of God, to see your countenance. And what does he call it? He calls it comely. It is beautiful to him. He wants to hear your voice. He says it is sweet to his ear. Have you understood this, beloved? Have you understand that, understood that he wants to see your face? Yet, so often, right, in this world, even in our call to worship, what's the word? Our, our face is downcast. Our face looks downward. Our face looks down at our feet. Sometimes it is our misery. Sometimes our face is turned down because of that. Sometimes it is our sin that causes us to be shamefaced and our countenance falls. As the publican at the temple, right, who would not so much as look to heaven, Luke 18, 13, and the publican standing afar off, so he's afar off from the temple, would not lift so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. See, if you are downcast, right, what's the directive? What are you to do, believer? Are you to hide your face from Christ? No, you are to show your face to the Lord. You know, this is in this text here in the Song of Songs, perhaps one of the most tender texts of all. You see, Christ is like the husband, right? Maybe his wife, maybe a husband has a wife whose face is down, looking down with grief. And Christ, the husband, comes, puts his hand under her chin and says, look to me. Look at me. Why be so sorrowful? Would you look at me? And I want to see your face. I want to hear your voice speak to me. Let me comfort you. That's what he does. Bafflingly, bafflingly he says to us, let me see thy countenance. Why? 
Why does he want to see our countenance? It's because, like in Psalm 42, 11, he is the health of our countenance. If our countenance is going to be turned from downcast to beholding the glory of the Lord, who will do it? It'll only be him. We can't gin up in ourselves. We can't drum up in ourselves an upbeat, uh, you know, that would be a facade, wouldn't it? It would just be a facade. It would be a lie to drum up joy in ourselves. And so when we are downcast, whether it is our sin or our misery, he says, let me see thy countenance. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. Whatever the reason for being disquieted, what is the solution? Hope thou in Christ. Go to him and say, thou art the health of my countenance. Let me show my face to Jesus that he would give it health. Psalm 42, 11, I mentioned this in the morning. It is literally that God is the Yeshua of my face. Yeshua meaning Jesus. God is literally the salvation of my face. In your trials then, you are to show your face to Jesus for strength. In your sin then, turn your face away from sin and turn your face to Christ for cleansing. For your sanctification, what does Christ's word tell you? But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.18 How are you going to be sanctified unless you with open face behold the glory of the Lord? It won't happen, friends. Do you remember what the context was for 2 Corinthians 3? The comparison to Moses who would speak to the Lord what? Face to face. The children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7. When we present our countenance to the Lord, the glory of the Lord shines upon us. And in the new covenant, believer, through Christ your mediator, you have such access to behold God through Christ with open faces, such that even Moses did not enjoy. So you might ask, how do I, how do I present my face to see the glory of the Lord? How do you behold, how do I behold his glory today? It is by faith working through his ordinances. It's very simple. We don't go to a particular place, right? We behold the glory of the Lord in the word of God because he speaks to us through it, right? When you think, you think on that, right? This is why we worship the Lord by hearing him speak. What did we read in Exodus thirty-three eleven in the old covenant? The Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. In Christ, when we come to the word of God, when you hear it or you hear it preached, that is the Lord speaking unto you face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. And that's how we come to the word. The Holy Spirit working through faith and the word of God believing that God, the Lord speaks to me. Need to pray as you come to the word. Help us see Christ speaking as a man speaks to his friend. What did Jesus say in John 15? Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. 
For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known to you. He speaks to us as a friend. And we are to, if we really love the Lord, right? As you heard this morning, do whatever he says in the word of God. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. But you and I must lift up our faces to the Lord and turn our faces to him. Is your face being presented to the Lord in the word of God? That's how you do it. And when the Lord convicts you of your sin, and we will fall into sin as we heard from Romans 7 this morning, what does the directive that the Lord gives? Does he say, hide your face from me if you are in Christ, believer? No, he said what? Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. The Lord says, look. He says, in other words, set your countenance, set your gaze, set your hope upon me. Show me thy countenance. And if you're an unbeliever, if you've never recognized this, this is all it takes to be saved, to set your face towards the Lord, take your shame to the Lord, and he will forgive you of it all. He says, look unto Jesus and be saved. Look unto him with faith and hope and trust. And believer, do you think that that looking was a once and done kind of thing? No, Hebrews 12 says we look unto Jesus and we run our race that is set before us. We are to present our faces to him. You see, this is not just some fanciful interpretation of the Song of Songs, as some might accuse the church of doing. This is the directive throughout the word of God, to present your face to the Lord that he might heal and he might save. And if that is the word, the sacrament as well teaches us to behold the Lord of glory, to look upon him who is crucified for our sake. We behold the glory of the only begotten son, torn, bruised, battered, crushed, and poured out for us. And he tells you to look upon his glory in that. He shows us the radiance of his love for us in that. Faith takes hold of the sacrament and sees her Savior. When the elements are exhibited, and this is one of the most wonderful things as as a minister, is to see all the faces of God's people turn almost with one accord in unison to look upon the elements. Their faces turned to consider the body and blood of Christ who says, here I am, thy Savior. Watch and remember as the minister breaks the bread to see, to look at how I was broken for you. Your countenance beholds the sacramental action of the breaking of the bread. And what do you see? Christ broken out of love in my place. And you see, your countenance does that fountain of blood as if you were there on the crucifixion day that poured out of your Savior's side for my sin and my uncleanness. And we ask ourselves, how can our countenance not shine after taking that all in by faith? He says to you, believer, present your countenance to me at my table. The Lord invites you, and he's giving you this week to prepare yourself for his table. The call for self-examination in 1 Corinthians 11, right, where it says, let a man examine himself before he comes. Is that warning meant to keep the believer away from him? No, it is meant and designed that you would resolve all that stands between you and Christ. But let a man examine himself and so what? 
Let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. He wants you there, isn't it? Isn't that what that text is teaching? He wants his people to eat and drink. And so the call to examine ourselves this week before the table is not meant to keep you away, not to keep your face from Christ, but it is to show your face. He doesn't say like the Pharisee did to that sinful woman, how dare you show your face around here? He doesn't do that to the believer. Instead, he says, oh, my dove, thy countenance is lovely. He says, come, my bride, show your face to me that I might heal it. That I, thy husband, may be the salvation of thy countenance. How can you hear such words from Christ, beloved, and not show your face at the table? And I don't even just mean on communion day as far as showing your face to Christ. I mean constantly. In corporate worship, what, what are we doing right now? We are showing our face to Christ. So in corporate worship, does he see your face regularly assembled amongst his body? How about in secret worship? How often do you present your countenance to the Lord who says to you, I delight to see thy countenance in your own private devotions when it's just you and the Lord? Does he see the face of his beloved regular in the closet? And that, not only does he want to present you to present your face to him, he also wants to hear your voice. He speaks to you in the word. But he beckons you not just to hear him. He asks of you, isn't this amazing? Let me hear thy voice. This is the Lord's sweet request that you speak with him. And he tells you what your voice is to him. And we often are baffled by this. For sweet is thy voice. What is he asking of you? He's asking for you to pray to him. Right? Perhaps sing praises to him as well but most certainly to pray to him, to communicate what is in your heart, right? your desires, your pains, your griefs, your joys, your need of Christ, your need for all that he is to you. You know, one of the things that I found very helpful in my own Christian walk, when I recognize more and more this relationship that Christ has to me is when I am tempted to sort of throw myself a pity party or to think on all the different griefs and the, the things that are vexing me in this world is I often ask myself now, why am I not taking this to my beloved? Like he wants to hear from me. He wants to hear the troubles of my heart. He wants me to inquire with him. Why am I not taking these things? Instead of bringing myself low to the ground, apart from Christ, I need to bring these things to the Lord in prayer. And here's the question I think we have to ask ourselves. Oh, my soul, has Christ ever tired of hearing from me? What's the answer? Never. And he never will. And yet we are the ones who are so tired of speaking to him. And how backwards that is. He is in his right to say, shut up. Don't talk to me. I don't want to hear from you. And yet the Lord of glory says, your voice is sweet to me. Speak to me. Pray to me. And yet we are the ones who say, I'm tired of hearing from you, Lord. I'm tired of being on my knees. I'm tired of speaking to you. I'm tired of pleading with you. I'm tired of expressing my heart to you. 
And worse, I just don't care to. It's so backwards, isn't it, friends? But the Lord teaches us on prayer. We are to be persistent. We are to cry to him constantly. Whether in the parable of the unjust judge when he, or when he said, ask, seek, knock. He wants you to approach him. He wants you to speak to him. It's, it's so strange that it's the Lord's own desire that you come and speak to him. And so I would say, make the Lord your greatest confidant and your greatest person to go to in your trials. Make him your greatest benefactor. Make him your greatest support. Make him your greatest love. That would have you speak with him so often. You would have seasons, hours of sweet prayer. You would have restless nights and your thoughts would immediately go to your Lord rather than your troubles. When your heart is troubled, you would immediately go to the Lord and you would speak to him because he says to you, sweet is thy voice. Your prayer closet would be the most visited room in your house more than the room with the television. Will prayer not be more sweet when you desire that, when you see Jesus desires you to come to him? And so I want you to put these two truths together, that he wants you to show him your face, and he also wants you to speak to him, that your voice is loving to him. What would be the use? Would those truths not collide together in Hebrews 4.16? Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How many ways does the Bible woo us to Christ? And yet we are so hard of heart that we won't go. How much greater boldness would we have? How much more mercy and grace would we seek if we knew that the Lord wanted our face and wanted our voices? It would give us such assurance to know that we can draw near to God through Christ who desires us. Hebrews 10, 21 through 22. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's what this text works in us. A full assurance of faith that Christ wants us having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water because he has called us, oh, my dove. When we were in Hosea, you heard that our God is an alluring, a wooing God. Hosea 2.14, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, speaking of the church, and speak comfortably or comfort unto her. What is the song of songs but this verse brought to life? Whenever you see the Lord deal with the church as his bride, he is wooing her, he is alluring her. The sacrament does it, the secret place does it, the corporate service does it, the singing of his praise, the reading of his word, prayer, meditation, the communion of the saints, all of it. He is wooing you to find himself and find your comfort in him. Oh, that you and I would rest in Christ and never see him as far and distant from us, but as near and dear to us. That is what you must recognize about your Savior. Did he not even woo his own disciples to him before he left us? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. John 14. How can we deny? How can any of you believers deny that the Lord wants us? He even is now preparing a place where you might be with him for eternity. (sighs) How does your Bible end? The spirit and the bride say, come. 
You must keep then this heavenly desire and this marriage ever in view as you walk in this world. And that will fix everything, beloved. It will fix everything to have Christ as your desire. But more than that, to see that Christ desires you. I'll touch on that last. A bit of an excursion. I hope I'll have time to deal with this briefly. But if we are his dove and his desire, you can take note briefly of the 15th verse. Take us, that is take hold of or catch the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. Now, the Hebrew grammar makes this more plain than the English text. I don't have time to go into this much. But this is an imperative that uh, is given to those who tend to the vineyard. It's masculine, plural, that these men are to catch the foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. Now, you remember that the church of Jesus Christ is often portrayed as a vineyard. Matthew 21 says it. The song of Isaiah 5 says it. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. Or Psalm 80, return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted and the branch which thou madest strong for thyself. So the church is considered the vineyard that the Lord has planted And that's why we often plead, Lord, in Psalm 80, return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine. We are his vineyard. But Christ says there are foxes in the vineyard. Now, foxes, you know, they're sly, they're deceitful animals, they're cunning, and they're crafty. You remember that Jesus, uh, we've considered this recently, called Herod what? That fox, right? He was cunning. He tried to catch our Lord, but failed. But the Hebrew word is more broad than just foxes. Jackals, wolves, and other similar predators are in view too. And he says that these will spoil the Lord's vineyard if left to roam and go amok. They bring in, in the New Testament, we read this, they bring in destructive heresies, they spoil the vineyard, they take captive, here we learn, the tender grapes, meaning those that are the most vulnerable in the church. And the Bible warns us of these kinds of men infiltrating the church from within the church. And so the Lord calls men who are under shepherds, who are elders, and he gives them the solemn duty here to cleanse the vineyard of those who will spoil his vineyard. These are the overseers. You remember in Acts 20, how did the apostle warn the Ephesian elders? Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God that is his vineyard which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous, what? Wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. See, this is what Christ is warning. These men are to uh, have a care for the tender grapes in the vineyard and cast out the foxes. This is what the elders are to oversee. And uh, especially that the disciples wouldn't be drawn out after such foxes. Now you'll notice that this is the the charge given to elders to have a care for the, the peace and purity of the vineyard. And you'll notice that next Lord's Day, if you've never understood why elders fence the communion table, this is why. This is a practice in evangelicalism that is disappearing, but we trust will be restored again. The elders are called to guard the vineyard from those who do not know Christ. Those walking in unrepentant flagrant sin, those that would spoil 
the vineyard and lead others astray with their sin or their destructive heresies, especially that would deny the faith and orthodoxy. Well, I cannot say much more on that, but you see here, even in the context of the vineyard, there are men called to cast out evildoers amongst the flock. Well, with that then we conclude, and I'll be more brief here, with their mutual interest. We end, and we'll pick this up next communion, uh, because this is worthy of a meditation solely on this. This is perhaps one of the most cited verses in the Song of Songs. Verse 16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. Now this ought to be emblazoned on every Christian's heart. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He belongs to us. We belong to him. As you read of the mystery of marriage in Ephesians 5, right? He is flesh of our flesh. He is bone of our bones. And this is so amazing. The twain become one in marriage. Jesus and the church are inseparable. All that is Christ's is ours. All that we are is, are, is his. This is why the great exchange is so beautiful when we see it in the context of the marriage bond. Our husband owns my sin and he disposes of it because we are one. And I have his righteousness because I am one with him. I am an heir of God and all that is God's because my beloved and I are one together. And this is the glory of the gospel, friends. It's found in this text. And this is what we have to get straight about our faith. The glory of the gospel is not that you have Christ's benefits, but that you have Christ himself and that he is yours. And because you have Christ, all of his benefits and all of his blessings are yours. That's the right way to look at it. Not that, oh, great, I am justified by faith. And this is the greatest blessing of all. In many ways, and I don't want to be impious here, that is almost nothing compared to the fact that Jesus Christ is mine and I am his. And that is where justification comes from, as well as adoption, sanctification, glorification, and all that is given to the believer. The communion table that comes before you preaches that profound truth, that you belong to Jesus soul and body, and Jesus belongs to you. How did the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 6? Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is the glory of the Apostle, isn't it? That you are Christ's. And now, all things are yours because of it. And it is helpful for you in your pilgrimage in this world to remember that you are presently engaged to Jesus Christ. Paul reminds you that you are betrothed today if you have faith to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused, that is, I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You are engaged. The marriage is not yet consummated, though it will be. It will be. That's the point of an engagement. And on the marriage day, on the last day, you will see that all things are yours in him, but most especially that he is yours and you are his. And that was Job's own consolation, wasn't it? That I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him 
and I will behold him, and he will be mine, and I am his. And this is the riches. These are the riches that are the believer's treasure, aren't they? As we thought of it this morning in the fear of the Lord, that we are the most blessed people of all, the ones chosen from before the foundation of the world to be the bride of Christ. And in all these ways, beloved, you must see the Lord wooing you to his table, saying, come to me, my beloved, for I am yours and you are mine. Let thy soul have an interchange at the communion table with me. Let your soul delight yourself in me. But also, and this is staggering, that I might delight in you. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will. And these are, again, words that are so utterly hard to grasp outside of the spirit testifying of its truth. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. See, I can't, I'm not pulling this doctrine out of one text. Throughout the word of God, not just two, not just three, but a multitude of witnesses to the truth that Christ desires his people is found, that you might better believe it. And so come, believer, to your Lord next week. If you only knew, if you only knew who delights in you, if you only knew who desired you, the God of heaven himself, how you would run to the table. Come, and we'll close on this thought, and believe that he will feed you on himself as well. The text says, he feedeth among the lilies. The sense is in Hebrew that he feeds or pastors his flock among the lilies. I'll remind you of what you heard earlier in the second, cha- uh, in the second verse of chapter two, that we are as lilies among the thorns, right? And so he feeds us, his people, when we gather together under his banner. He is in our midst, and he will be found feeding us at the table of the Lord next week. And that's what the table preaches as well. He feedeth uh, um, among the lilies. We commune with him and with one another together, the people of God, lilies among the thorns. He feedeth among the lilies. And we un- anticipate how this text is to be understood in its fullness, right? In Revelation 7, 17, almost verbatim. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There's a foretaste there of Christ's feeding and leading is connecting to him, removing from our hearts every grief that we find. And so, beloved, Have you not heard your Savior allure you so wonderfully from this text? Does he not allure his people to his table? Does he not say, why not turn thy downcast eyes heavenward and look to me? He says, come and speak with me. Come, my beloved, I am yours and and you are mine. Let me feed you on myself. I am the vine. You are the branches. Let me feed you in love. Let me ask, and this is the Lord inquiring, what is keeping you from his table? Are there doubts? Put them away. Are there sins? Cast them out of your heart as leaven. Are there fears? Have them vanquished. Is there weakness? Find strength in Christ. Long for your beloved and rejoice all week. Deal with these matters and rejoice all week on the truth. My beloved is mine and I am his. And come with desire for him, knowing that he first desires you to come. Amen. Please rise for prayer if able.
our Father and our God. What astonishing things are found in the Word of God. And yet, we confess that rarely do we find ourselves in the Word that speaks peace to us and speaks and woos us to Christ, our Beloved. And so, Father, we pray this week, perhaps, first of all, you would remove from our heart the hardness that refuses to come to see and hear what the Savior has to say to his bride. So, Father, we pray that you would drum up in our hearts, and we can't do this ourselves, a desire to lift up our countenance to the Lord, to look upon Jesus, who desires to look upon us, that he might feed us, that he might give us the shining face of God, that he might shine upon us as we hear in the benediction from Numbers chapter 6, that we would lift up our eyes to heaven and receive that heavenly benediction, that the Lord our God would shine his face upon us and be gracious unto us, that he would bless us and give us peace. Father, we pray that you would cause your people here to resolve whatever it is in their hearts, whatever hardness there is, whatever doubts there are, whatever fears there are, that they would look unto Jesus and they would find their assurance in him. And if any here have never understood Christianity because they have never understood it as a God who is drawing all men to himself by showing the radiance and beauty of Christ while at the same time showing the evil of our hearts, we pray that this day would be the day of salvation to them and that they would look unto Jesus and be saved all the ends of the earth, even as we prepare to go out into the world. We pray that we would take that message in our heart for our own selves and then proclaim it to those that we will uh, run into. We pray that you would bless your people in these ways, preparing them for communion. In Jesus' name, amen.